This is our family, our four children anyway. That's uh, Nathan on the far left, our oldest son who attends here with his five children. Then that's my daughter Caitlin who lives in Arkansas with her three children. And then on the other side of Linda, that's Deborah who lives in Lubbock and is pregnant with her first child. And then there's Scott who came from Iowa with his family with four kids. And when you put us all together, we look like that. <laughs> now, the reason I mention that is um, we're a family and we're a large family now and we have a great joy in getting together. It's, it's just a tremendous amount of fun for these families to all come from different parts and get together and spend time together. But inevitably, there's some conflict that occurs from time to time. You know, problems between uh, our own children and their spouses sometimes. Uh, our grandchildren have difficulties with one another. Even though they get along great, sometimes one of them seems to reach out and hit another one or they compete and they jostle in line for food and all of these things that just um, create a little bit of challenge and conflicts that must be navigated in order to continue to have family gatherings and a unified family. It seems like when Papa mentions these two verses that it should be enough that everybody understands they're to glorify God and they just listen to these two verses, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You would think a 10-year-old would grasp that quickly. <laughs> they don't. The other verse is from 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know, those, really, between those two verses, shouldn't that just get it done? There should be perfect harmony. But there's not. Why is that? Well, it requires consistent application. Now, when we come to the book of 1 Corinthians, it's addressed to believers, right? And we know that believers are called the children of God. For 1 John 3.11, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And then it says in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing to Timothy so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So when we're reading this letter that Paul's written to the church at Corinth, he's writing a letter to a church family. It's a family. And many, much like the dynamics within our own family, there's, there's differences between the believers. There's sometimes conflicts that come up. There's sometimes problems that come up. Well, that, that happened in the case of the Corinthian church. And when there were problems, they sat down and they wrote a list of the problems. And they sent them to Paul. 
And they waited for Paul to help them overcome their difficulties. And Paul wrote this letter back to them. They received it and they gathered. I just, you know, I just like to have that picture in our minds as we come. These people deeply loved Paul. And Paul deeply loved these people. And they're all believers. Should be, Paul just could share those two verses with them. And they should be good to go, right? But they're not. They're still having challenges and problems. And Paul seeks to address those, but with great patience and great love. But as I read this letter, I can't help but keep going, man, that is so compassionate. That is so care. That's so beautiful. And I hope that today as we look at our verses today, that's what, that's what you are struck by. You know, what is it we're supposed to do in this family of Countryside Bible Church? Well, this is the Lord's letter to us, right? And this is his instruction for us because we love the Lord deeply and he loves us. So this letter can be helpful, very helpful, to maintain unity, to maintain um, the type of stability that we need to have in our very own church. So today's lesson is the love that edifies. We're talking about limiting liberty. What does that mean? Well, we're going to look at that. We're now in, in the outline. We're past the introduction where Paul had identified who they were as far as being the church of God, being saved by the grace of God, being under the word of God. And then we came to a correction for the Corinthians' problems. And if you remember, those weren't problems they wrote to Paul about in the letter, right? The, the, the uh, first six chapters are not about uh, problems that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. They're problems that Paul had heard about from reports. And I, you know, I imagine the reason they weren't questions is because they were a result of behavior that was it was wrong, and Paul had to address that first before he could go to their letter and answer any of these questions. So as this family's gathered, this church family's gathered, the first thing they're receiving is correction, reproof over these areas that uh, were, were wrong. And before they, he addressed their questions, he had to correct those things that were going on in their church. And if you remember, in chapters one through four, uh, they were, had broken into factions. And as a result, it was of pride that they were, um, they were in these factions causing division and causing problems. And Paul said, look, you can't put your faith in the wisdom of men, but you put your faith in the wisdom of God and stop these uh, factions and create unity, he called the church to unify. And then as we went through uh, the next chapter in five, he called the church to purity. He called the church to purify because it was tolerating sin in the church. They didn't write to Paul about that. They didn't say, hey, we're tolerating sin. What do we do? 
That didn't come up that way. It came in a report that said, look, there's one among you who's living in, uh, in, in sin that's observable to everyone in the congregation. He has his father's wife. And he says, that one who has been unrepentant and has not responded to correction needs to be put out of the church because you can't tolerate sin in the church. They were doing so because of their pride, he said. And then we got to chapter 6, and he ad- ad- admonished them for having lawsuits between one another. Unimaginable to Paul that they would be suing one another, that there weren't those within their body that was, they couldn't find one wise man to settle their dispute, but they were going to the secular authorities. And he said, that's not glorifying to God. See, all of these things that we, he corrected were things that dishonored God. And that church was there for the sole purpose of what? The purpose of the church is to glorify God. And Paul said, he started, these are things that are not glorifying to God. You're here to, for that purpose, but these are things that dishonor God. God wants us to be trophies of his grace. He wants us to display us to the world that might draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do these things to dishonor him, we fail in our responsibility and in our privilege that it is to represent God as his ambassadors to those who are unbelievers. The last one was to maintain moral purity, to avoid sexual immorality. Well, that, that covered Paul's concerns that had to be addressed immediately, the conduct that had to be addressed immediately so that it freed him then to answer the questions that were in his letter. And the first questions that came up in his letter, uh, Dave, started, Dave spent some time on from chapter 7. The questions had to do with marriage. And you can see these are heartfelt questions from the Corinthians who really wanted instruction on, you know, what do you do in marriage now that you're saved out of a pagan culture? Maybe one of you saved and, and the other isn't saved. Matter of fact, is marriage even right? Or what about the people that are single? Is being single okay? So, you know, Paul went through kind of like a traffic cop. He kind of directed them to the scriptures and the word of God in order to answer these questions for them. And he, you know, he told them it was okay to be married. It was okay to be single. Either one of those can do what? You can glorify God in either state. Remember, this book is about glorifying God, okay? So in marriage, we want to glorify God in our marriages, and, or we can glorify God in our singleness. What's the benefit of being single? You can be totally devoted And time spent focused on serving our God and serving others. What's the benefit of being married? The benefit of being married is that you have a companion through life and you have one that can share the responsibilities of being a Christian witness. But he says you you give yourself completely to your spouse. And then he went through, if you're 
married to an unbeliever, if you were saved and your spouse remains an unbeliever, what do you do? Do you leave him? No. You stay married to him and you trust that God may do what? May save them through your example. I mean, again, Paul is helping these, these at the Corinthian church understand how they're to live a holy life that glorifies God. And they're to stay in that relationship. It's difficult. Look, there's nothing about uh, in, the, in the Bible that I see here about when you become a Christian, life just gets easier from that point forward. Life gets more joyful from that point forward, right? There's a path through our difficulties and trials, but it doesn't mean that there aren't still trials and difficulties. Paul just helps us navigate them, right? And then it says that if the, the spouse is abandoned by the unbelieving husband or wife, they're free to remarry. Or if the spouse dies, they're free to remarry. He just helps them navigate each one of those situations. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. And uh, Chaz covered all of those as well last week, all of those uh, different questions that they ask in Paul's response that brought them into alignment with the Word of God and in a situation where they were glorifying God in their marriages. Well, now we come to a rather unique situation, probably not one you've thought a lot about. Uh, in chapter 8, we're going to be talking about food that is sacrificed to idols and eating food that is sacrificed to idols. Our Thanksgiving dinner did not consist of that. Probably yours didn't as well. But there are some great principles to take out of this chapter. And we're going to glean those this morning. So if you're not in chapter 8, turn to chapter 8 and let's read our verses for today. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, and we exist for him, and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. 
But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Also, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Okay, just, just a very quick roster, kind of like you get the numbers of the players on the field. I want to, want to just kind of identify this for you so as we go through this verse, you can see the, the players that we're talking about here, okay? So there's a brother with knowledge. Now, a lot of times you'll hear that brother called the stronger brother. I don't call him the stronger brother. I call him the brother with knowledge. The reason I don't call him the stronger brother is I don't see a demonstration of strength, but I do see a demonstration of knowledge. So let's, let's see the, the brother with knowledge in verse 1, he says, has all knowledge. In verse 4 says, he knows that idols are nothing but dead, inanimate objects. And then in verse 8, he says, he knows that God has no regulations for food. And he's come to the conclusion, therefore, eating foods that have been sacrificed to idols is acceptable for all believers, and they want everyone to be able to experience their freedom, okay? The other brother is sometimes called the weak brother because he's the brother with the weak conscience. Now, this brother is lacking in knowledge, it says in verse 7. He still struggles with idols and the evil associated with idolatry, his conscience convicts him that God is offended by eating food sacrificed from idols. Therefore, eating meat sacrificed to idols at a feast or purchased from the market, he believes is offensive to God. And he didn't want to see anybody doing that. So who's right? How do you resolve this? They wrote this in a question to Paul. And he's going to answer that question. But before he does, I want to take you to this issue because this isn't a small issue. Now, at times, it may seem like I make this seem like a small issue or a, a trivial issue by some of the comparisons because there's not great analogies to this. But this is a big issue. Okay? So don't let me feel like I'm underestimating this. This is a big issue for the church. All right? Turn over to... Acts chapter 15, just taking you to link up scripture, another scripture that you might not have put with this at all. It's a, it's a different context, but the same principle. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Do you get that? So it said, some of the sect of the Pharisees had believed. Now, 
where are we here? We're, we're at the Jerusalem Council, at the Jerusalem Church. This is an issue that is very, very important to the early church to get right. So the apostles are here. Paul's here. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. What does that sound like? Legalism. Something added to salvation. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So, these are believers, though. You know, it, it may be that maybe they weren't saying this, that it's required for salvation, but they were adding this list of rules. And you know, it's interesting because Christians, sometimes we want a list of rules. We want somebody to just say, hey, just tell me what to do, and I'll do that. Just give me a list of things. Why doesn't the, why don't the elders get together and put out a list of things for us to do and to don't do? But you know, the Christian faith isn't like that. Why isn't it like that? Because it leads to legalism. And legalism leads to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness leads to thinking you're good and you're right because of the things that you're doing. And God doesn't want us there. He wants us dealing out of a principle that comes from our heart. Legalism can be cold-hearted. Christianity is to be from the heart, motivated by love and a demonstration of love. And Paul's going to tell them how to get there. But we're right now, we're in this um, Jerusalem council and this... This legalism comes up in chapter 7 of verse 15. says, after then much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Massive declaration at the Jerusalem Council in the early church. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, freedom from legalism to enjoy Christian liberty. And you know what? That's what we all remember from the Jerusalem Council. But that wasn't all that was said that time. Look at verse 13. So after they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. And James goes through, this is God's eternal plan to bring the Gentiles into the church from eternity. And he says, in verse 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Verse 20, listen carefully. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. You mean this came up at the Jerusalem Council? Yes. 
So are they like adding more rules on top of the Gentiles now? He says, but we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled from blood. No, these are not more rules. This is the same principle we're going to talk about today. And that's why I link this into 1 Corinthians 8. James was calling on the Gentile Christians to limit their liberty out of love for their Jewish brothers. Same principle. MacArthur says in his commentary, things contaminated by idols refers to food, often to pagan gods, then sold in the temple butcher shops. Idolatry was a repulsive, blasphemous matter to the Jews. The Old Testament is replete with warnings against it. Further, their ancestors, their ancestors' practice of idolatry led to the destruction of the nation. They would naturally seek to avoid any manifestation of it, including eating meat offered to idols. That was a serious issue in the early church. Interesting. Interesting, isn't it? That here we are now in Corinth. We're not dealing with the... Uh, the part that's, you know, that we're not dealing with this being repulsive to Jews. We're dealing with the food sacrifice to idols being a stumbling block to, to Gentiles. The principle's going to be the same, though. So now, come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, our book theme is, For I determine on nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our lesson verse is from 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Our theme today is the freedom that we have as a result of our salvation in Christ is to be limited by our love for God and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a limit to our liberty. Okay, so that's, we talked about legalism over here, Right? That's one problem. Now we're going to talk about liberty, living in, in our freedoms, which we are free to live in, but need to limit them out of love for our brethren who it might offend. So you see the balance? There's a balance here, right? There's a balance between legalism and there's a balance between unlimited freedom. Both of those need to have the same principle, and that is Limited by our love for God and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So who is right when Paul is concerned about, uh, it says, as Paul writes this letter, he is more concerned about just, more than just being right. We're going to see who's right as far as the knowledge, but as far as putting that knowledge into action, More than just about being right. So we're going to begin with the rule. Look at one through three. So he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Interesting, that word things sacrificed to idols in the Greek is one word. It's one word, and it means idol sacrifices. And what, what happened here in the pagan religions, most of the pagan religions, and there were many, um, believed that there were evil spirits that... They had many gods, but they also had many evil spirits. And that the way evil spirits uh, attacked humans was they came in through their food. So 
The way they consecrated their food was they sacrificed to idols. That's why a lot of the food had been sacrificed to idols because they believed it consecrated. It took away the ability for an evil spirit to get into you if it had been sacrificed to idols. So much of the food was that way. And the way that it was sacrificed was in three parts. The pagan animals were brought to the priest. It was slaughtered. And then it divided into three parts. Part was burned on the altar. Part was given to the priest. And many times the priest took that part and sold it in the marketplace. And then the remaining part went home with the one who made the sacrifice. Okay, so... The problem happened in the Christian community when the priest who sold his share of meat at the marketplace, some Christians would buy that and serve it at home or have it at home. Some Christians believe that was perfectly fine. Some it, it was offensive to. The other time this could be a problem was the pagan, the Gentile, the unbeliever, who made the offering, would take his consecrated meat home and serve it to friends and family at a banquet or a wedding where Christians might attend. Some had no problem with that. Others were ruined by it. It, 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 it was offensive to them. So, you have those two challenging issues now. And that's what was going on. Um, now, that's, that's not here. We don't really deal that here. But here's, here's what we can think about because, and again, I don't want this to seem like this is trivial, but these matters can become very important in our church. You know, do you think within our church there's ever been people with two opposing views? You know, with issues like drinking alcohol, smoking, dancing, maybe playing cards, movies, music. I mean, those, those have traveled throughout church history with the church, right? All of those issues. And more recently, how to educate your children, whether they should play sports on Sunday. Um, you know, people can get really crosswise about these things. COVID. COVID presented all of us challenges. Uh, and believers could be on opposite, whether, whether to wear a mask, whether to, whether to attend church. There was a lot of of challenging issues here. How do you resolve those? Well, you know, this is, this is really helpful. Uh, you know, I just think sometimes we, we can be those that know our rights, know our freedoms, know our liberties, and we're quick to make sure we inform others of them. These are our, this, we have, we, it's okay for us to do this. This is our right. We, we need to do this. And uh, whether it's, you know, um, you know, whether it's, whether we have robes in the choir, whether we have pews or whether we have seats. I mean, I, I know some of these things are, are very trivial now, but um, they can be very important for a certain period of time. Um, and yet, you know, just like when I was correcting my grandkids, I usually corrected the older ones, right? And made them responsible for the younger ones. Right? Because the, the older ones are what? They're supposed to know more. They're to be more mature. It's interesting. Paul doesn't address the 
weaker brother in his response here. You know who he addresses? He addresses the one with more knowledge. And here we are. He's quoting from their letter here when he says in verse 1, we know that we have all knowledge. Those are the people who are with knowledge. I don't call them the stronger people because they're not demonstrating strength. They're demonstrating knowledge. They say to Paul, we have all knowledge. We need guidance on how to use this knowledge because we have all knowledge. And Paul, you know, he, he prayed for them to have knowledge. He wanted them. Knowledge is not bad. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, we said, Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is to be pursued. But you have to use knowledge in the right way. And the brother with knowledge is confident of his liberty in Christ. You know, in Colossians 3.17, it says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. There is Christian liberty. You're freed from the bondage of the, uh, the legalism of the Pharisees. You're free from the bondage of sin. There's certain freedom that comes in your salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember, Paul went through this list. He, he, he expected them to have knowledge, and he called them to have knowledge. He said in, in chapter 6, six times, or do you not know? So he called them to exhibit their knowledge, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, or do you not know that we will, be, that we will judge angels, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Or do you not know that your bodies are a member of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own? But see, knowledge, what Paul wanted out of their knowledge was to make them cautious of thinking too highly of themselves. Remember, pride was a problem in this church. Knowledge is good. It's very good. But what else does he say in verse 1? But knowledge makes arrogant. If by itself, believers become arrogant with knowledge, because what are they missing? What are they missing? Love. He says, but love edifies. Edifies means builds up. It's a love for God and a love for others that makes knowledge useful. Knowledge is subordinate to love. You, does that make sense? Love first, knowledge second. Love trumps knowledge. You can know what's right for you, and you can use it to the detriment of your brother. Don't do that. Don't do that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all ministries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Yeah. Love for your fellow believers to be the priority. Is there a limit to how far in showing love? There is. The limit to showing love is you can never compromise the gospel or core doctrinal issues. 
But you know what? There's a lot of other areas that love can cover over a multitude of sin. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And here, in this passage, we're talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. It's a serious issue, but it's not a core doctrinal issue. And so the ones with knowledge, what are they concerned with? When they're going to Paul with this question, what is their concern? They feel like their freedom is to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And they don't want that freedom restricted in any way. They're concerned with their pleasure, their enjoyment, their hospitality, and their freedom. What are the ones with a weak conscience concerned about? They're concerned about dishonoring God and ignoring their conscience and about doing something that would be offensive to God. Well, what's Paul going to be concerned about? Paul's going to be concerned about protecting the one with a weak conscience. So this is going to be addressed to the one with knowledge because Paul is calling on the one with knowledge to protect the one with a weak conscience. Okay, so if we're looking at our own situation, and we know our freedoms, and we know our rights, how are we to limit them? We're to use use our knowledge, but we're to use it to protect the one that has a weaker conscience. We have all knowledge. We know what's right. We know what's permissible. But we're to limit that. So the rule, the practice of his liberty is to be limited by the desire to build up others in love. The freedom gained in salvation from legalistic requirements is to be limited by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul begins to answer their questions with the rule necessary to regulate the practice of Christian liberty. He addresses his response to the believers with knowledge He credits the Corinthian believer with having knowledge and states that knowledge by itself makes a person arrogant. But he states that knowledge linked with love builds up other believers and is motivated by our love for God. So the rule, the knowledge of freedom gained in salvation from legalistic requirements is to be limited by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that balance. Well, next we come to the regulations. Look, Paul agrees with their knowledge. There's, they're not wrong in what they know. Look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we, Paul including himself, know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Again, he's quoting from their letter and he's agreeing with that. And by the way, this is very good theology that they have. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, so-called meaning not real, there's many of them in this Greek and Roman culture. There's gods everywhere. He says, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Wow. I mean, that's great theology, and we could preach on that for
for many days. But in the context, what we're going to do here, it just gives you that understanding that what Paul is saying here, he's agreeing that the brother with knowledge knows that the idols worshipped by pagans do not exist. And when he says the one God, the Father, who created everything and we exist for his purpose, that is the one true God. And it's the one Lord Jesus Christ by whom all things and we exist through him. It's that agency by which the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the Father through his divine Son. He's not arguing with their theology. He's showing just how, um, how remarkable their knowledge is that they know the one true God. And what a privilege that is. But what does he say in verse 7? However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. So what he's saying is there are some believers in this church that don't have the same knowledge you have. They don't yet understand the relationship between idolatry and their Christian practice. The brother with a weak conscience violates it when he eats food that he believes is forbidden. But Paul agrees with that regulation that idols don't exist. He agrees with it, but then he says, not everyone has this knowledge. The believers that still struggled with the reality of idols needed to avoid anything to do with idols. I'm going to give you another analogy. Now, I understand. There are no perfect analogies. This is not perfect. But when a person who has been an alcoholic quits drinking and has spent a lot of time and a lot of work to quit drinking, is now placed in a situation with somebody who knows that biblically drinking is fine and they're encouraged to express their freedom by having a drink with them. And they're an alcoholic. What might it cause that person to do? Stumble. It might cause them to go back to their alcoholism. You know, um... I grew up in a family of alcoholics. My dad built a bar in his living room. And, you know, he drank every night. And I watched what alcoholism does. And I watched it with my brother. And it's, it's a horrible thing. It ruins a person. Um, and even after one comes to faith, it's a war. And, you know, you kind of understand. It's not a perfect illustration here, but... You don't want to see somebody who's battled alcohol and gotten some um, uh, victory over that through the Lord and then encourage them to come into a setting where that's, where they're going to be exposed to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. The, the one with knowledge is, Paul said, look, d don't put them in a situation like that. Their conscience is not yet developed to a point where they understand what their freedom is. They have a weak conscience. And if they ignore their conscience, their conscience God placed in them to protect them. 
And you might be taking away God's protection from them by impressing upon them your freedom. You don't want to do that. That's bad. They go on in verse 8, they say, but look, food not a commendance to God. And once again, Paul agrees with that. Food has no significance to God. Whether it doesn't make us worse if we eat it or better if we don't eat it. Not eating food sacrificed idols does not make a believer bad, nor does it make a person good. It has a neutral consequence to it. Paul agrees with that. That's what the, that's what the ones with knowledge were saying. Look, Paul, don't you get it? The brother with knowledge knows food is not restricted by God. Paul, it's not restricted by God. Why, are you, why, would, why would we restrict ourselves? Why? Why restrict ourselves? Because there's a risk. What is the risk? Well, look at verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block of the weak. Man, I don't want to become a stumbling block. You want to become a stumbling block? Okay, here's, here's some instruction on how not to become a stumbling block. Because we don't want to do that. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. And this is the brother for whose sake Christ died. Paul lays it out there pretty hard, doesn't he? I mean, look at that. Look at that verse. He says, look, the conduct of the brother with the knowledge may destroy the brother with a weak conscience. It may ruin him. That's the risk here. He says, don't let this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to the weak. You risk creating a hindrance for other believers. Weaker, with a weaker conscience, without the knowledge that you have. Paul agrees that eating idol sacrifices is not prohibited by Scripture. But there's another reason that's more important to consider. And that's the protection of your weaker brother. Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in our brother's way. Do you get that, how that context is now? In verse 14 of chapter 14, he says, I know, I'm convinced of the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But to him who risks, uh, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, for this man with a weaker conscience, for him to participate, it's, it's sin to him. This is where Paul applies the rule that the practice of our liberty is to be limited by the desire to build up others in love. Verse 10, for if someone, the weaker brother from his church, sees you have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, a place where idol sacrifices are served, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? may result in him falling back into his sin. The weaker brother may ignore his conscience, may violate the protection God's provided, may follow the brother with knowledge, may be drawn back into his previous sinful lifestyle, may be injured, may be ruined. Look, he's not going to lose his faith. That's, that's not what this is saying. He can't lose his faith. God protects his faith. 
but he can lose the unity with his brother in Christ. He can lose the fellowship. He can lose the um, confidence in what he's doing, and now he's consumed by guilt over what he's done. Romans 14, 15 says, For if because of food your brother's hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food for whom Christ died. You know, Paul wants you to understand how special our brothers and sisters in Christ are to Christ and how special they should be to us. Christ died for them. Certainly, we can love them in a way that limits our freedom. It's just a great contrast there. It's a powerful example of the destruction that the cold-hearted attitude of a brother with knowledge can make when he asserts his rights without considering the damage. What a contrast that is to Christ who died for the, who out of his great love died for the sins of those of us who are in Christ versus the loveless conduct of one with knowledge who asserts his rights and doesn't concern himself with the damage it's causing to another believer. Should not be. But it's not just um, instruction here given by Paul. He says, look, I want you to understand, when you do this, you are sinning against your brother. You get that in verse 12? And so by sinning against a brother and wounding in their conscience when it's weak, that the brother with knowledge sins against the brother by leading him to ignore his weaker conscience. But in addition to sinning against a weaker brother, it says in verse 12, you sin against Christ. The brother with knowledge sins against Christ by disregarding the devastating impact of his conduct. You know, in Matthew 18, 6, it says, whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Paul explains the rule that the knowledge of freedom and liberty and rights is to be limited by love. He acknowledges the agreement in the regulation cited by the Corinthians that the idols do not exist. There's no dietary restrictions. But he tells the Corinthians the most important consideration involved is asserting your right of liberty is the impact it will have on other believers. If you ignore the concern of a brother with a weak conscience, you risk ruining them. You risk being a stumbling block. And Paul indicates that there is a response that doesn't do that. It's a response of love. And it's the restraint. Look at verse 13. And this is where you just kind of pause for a minute. And you go, that's beautiful. That's, that's wonderful. That a brother with knowledge would come to this conclusion and look, Paul just says, this is what I do. Look what he says in verse 13. 
Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now look, Paul's not giving you a list here of do's and don'ts. He's not saying, don't eat meat sacrificed idols because how much would that help anybody in this room? Right? But he's giving you a principle here. Look, don't be a stumbling block to a fellow believer. Protect their conscience by your conduct. Wow, that's awesome. What if we all had that concern? What if that's what overwhelmed us when instead of asserting our rights, we thought, wow, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want somebody else to stumble. I don't want to be a stumbling block. It comes up all the time. I can't even give you so many analogies because you'll go, well, that's kind of trivial. Well, you know what? It's really not trivial when you submit your rights out of love for your fellow believer. Now, the issue at the time does seem less than maybe this big issue in the church, but guys, small things can become big issues. They don't, though, if the one with knowledge will not assert their right and say, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. You know, it goes back to, you know, when there were lawsuits among believers, and Paul said, why not rather be what? Yeah, why not rather be wronged? It's okay. If it's not a core doctrine or it doesn't have to do with the gospel, it's okay. You can limit your liberty. Even though you know it's okay to do something that is not connected with Scripture. The restraint. He says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'm not going to do it. The brother with knowledge anticipates the impact of his action on his brother. He says, I'll never eat meat again. The brother with knowledge sacrifices his own rights to protect his brother. He says, the brother with knowledge limits his liberty motivated by his love for God and his love for his brother. See, look, if we're just looking at the brother with a weaker conscience and we're doing something and then we're watching him, did he get it? Did he see I limited my liberty? That's not any good. Or if you say, you know what, I'm not going to do this today because I have knowledge. I know I can do it, but I'm not going to do it because you don't. That's not good. You know why we're to be motivated to do it? Because of our love for God. And we know that God is pleased when he's glorified by the behavior of his church. That's why we do it. We're not looking at that brother with the weaker conscience to see what the impact was. We're just doing what obeys God and let God deal with that. Okay, let's look at some application. Yeah, it's kind of small. So learn the liberty that you have as a result of your salvation through Jesus Christ. Look, knowledge is good. We need to understand these things that, that um, give us Christian liberty. We need to understand the freedoms that are in Christ. We need to have that knowledge. You know what? If everybody had that knowledge, how many would we have with a weak conscience? Wouldn't have any. 
So we need to learn. We need to learn the liberty that is a result of your salvation through Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify to you again that every man who receives circumcision, that, is, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So first thing he's saying is you're not under the, uh, the requirements, the Pharisee requirements that have been placed upon you. And circumcision being one of those, you're also free from that. And Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. That's the gospel. That's what we need to... If you're here today and you're working to make yourself right with God, it's not going to happen. No, what the gospel says is that God is perfectly holy and you are sinful. And that there's no good works you can do to bring yourself right with God. And any, right, any works that you are doing to make yourself right with God are like filthy rags. So, if you're here today, what you need to do in order to come to saving faith is you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that it's Christ that makes us right with God, that justifies us in the sight of the Lord Je- in the sight of God. That when we repent of our sin and we turn toward faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord sees Christ's righteousness and not our sin. He forgives our sin. You can be forgiven of your sin today if you will turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Number two, anticipate the potential negative impact that your actions may have on other believers. So this is interesting. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Now we're going to get here, but I'm jumping ahead. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Remember, knowledge can make arrogant, love edifies, but let no man seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything, oh, wait a minute, what's that say? Verse 25, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Eat anything? Yep. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's okay. If one of the unbelievers... The pagans invite you and wants to go eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So if a Gentile invites you to their house, serves a food sacrificed to idols, don't ask questions, just eat what's put before you. It's okay. Isn't that interesting? Don't ask questions, it's okay. Why? You're not destroying someone, you're not ruining their conscience, you know it's okay. But verse 29 Excuse me, verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for conscience sake. Do you see the limit here? Do you see how that's put into practice? Look, if it's, if it's your situation, you're in a place, you know what's, what's controlled by Scripture. It's okay. 
But if it's going to defile the conscience of someone else, don't do it. That's the principle, right? He says, verse 29, I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning for that which I give thanks? Now look at this. This is the context of this verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31. You all know this verse. But now put it into context of today's lesson. Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. Right? This is how we glorify God. That's now the context of that verse. Isn't that wonderful? All right, last one. Show your love for God and for his children by limiting your liberty. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That, that, it's a great Application of this principle. First Peter 2.16. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Slaves of God. Use it the right way. Romans 15, 1 through 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each one of us is to please our neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. You know, it'd be great if we could just use these two verses. Do nothing from selfish or empty and conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. It'd be great if we could just tell everyone, beloved, if, you so love, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That really is what these verses are saying, but now you see how Paul applied it when it comes to limiting our liberty. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you you give such clear instruction through your word for how we can glorify you in the church. Father, that we understand the rule that the knowledge of our freedom, that our liberties, that of our rights, is to be limited by our love, our love for you and our love for our fellow believers. Father, we know that there's things that are given in Scripture that uh, give us freedom. But, Father, we also know that a more important consideration than being right and asserting our right is to anticipate the impact it will have on other believers. Lord, help us not ignore the concern of a brother with a weak conscience and risk sinning against them and against Christ. Father, help us to have a response and a restraint from asserting our freedom out of love for our brother. Make that our priority, Lord, that it might glorify you in our church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.